0: teachable hearts we pray in your son's name amen so before i forget i haven't been down here since last october and this place is looking awesome you guys are doing a great job down here and it looks great from the street and even looks better once i get in here so thank you for all your hard work you've put in it's it's definitely worth it and um I was able to find my way, I could actually get a cup of water. It was only the second chance. The first one was the hot water, of course, and I missed that one. But then then somebody was nice enough to actually give me a bottle of water. So you're you're hospitable. You take care of the new person that comes in. Really appreciate that. Uh, So yeah, you guys got stuff going on Memorial Day weekend. We do, too, uh, downtown. And um, Memorial Day weekend is usually viewed as kind of the unofficial kickoff for summer, right? And a lot of people do camping. in the summer and even kick off this this coming weekend i'm just curious show of hands how many of you are into camping you do camping a little bit somewhat at least okay quite a few of you i i'm not one of you (laughs) i don't do that um i'm more of a climate controlled guy i i if i'm going to go on vacation or something i like to have the nice soft bed and be able to adjust the thermostat and you know that sort of thing but there are exceptions Um, about 20 years ago the joy family Uh, Took a trip to Duluth, Minnesota, northern part of Minnesota, and we actually did some camping for several days, and um, which is is just hilarious. I mean, we had a little camp stove, and I'd go to the store and buy my can of Denny Moore beef stew, and we put it in the pot and warm it up, and that was about the extent of what we had um, while we were there. I think like morning, noon, and night for like five days. But um, one of the things we did do is we got to swim, and so if you pull the picture up, please, Um, this is a picture. I don't know if you recognize either of the people in here. Um, but the guy in the pool, um, that's me when I had color in my hair. Um, that was me. And that's my youngest son, Peter, who was about three at the time there. And if you can see what's happening here, I'm in the water. He's on the edge of the pool. And both of us are going like this. You can see that. If you can see the face, both of us are pleading. We're pleading with the other. Okay? I'm pleading with him to jump. You know because i'll tell him i'm gonna catch him right and he's pleading with me because he's scared he says no come get me come get me i i don't want to do that and just the look on his face is like he's just he's just scared when we're done i'll tell you how it turns out okay (laughs) but this this is kind of a picture of of will he trust me will he trust me Will he take the step of faith that follows trust? Today we're going to be beginning to look at one of the foundational chapters in all of the Old Testament, and certainly one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. But first, but first, a bit of a review. So, previously in the story of Abraham, we're going to go back to Genesis 12, 1 through 9. God's command, go out from your land to the land I will show you. God's promise, I'll make you a great nation, a blessing, give you protection. What's Abram's response? He goes, he builds an altar, he calls on the Lord. Command, promise, response. Now, move forward. Abram in Egypt. Abram goes to Egypt because to avoid a famine. He says Sarah is his sister. Half-truth His half-sister, forgets that little part about it being his wife, okay? Causes problems. Sarah is taken by Pharaoh. Pharaoh's household is struck by plagues. Abram sent back home by Pharaoh. And then Abram returns to the altar site and calls on the Lord. Remember last side, build an altar, call on the Lord. Now he returns to the altar site, calls on the Lord. Good things happen, he does that. Bad things happen, he does that. Moving on, Genesis 13, Abram and Lot separate. The land cannot support them both. There's strife between their people. Abram lets Lot choose the land, even though it would be Abram's right to do it. But he lets Lot choose. Lot chooses the best-looking land and settles near Sodom. Near Sodom. The Lord renews his promise of land and offspring. Abram obeys God's command to walk around the land. Abram builds an altar to the Lord. Getting kind of a theme here? Obedience. Building an altar, calling on the name of the Lord. Okay. Abram rescues Lot. Genesis 14, 1-16. The four kings, led by Laomer of Elam, take all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as Lot, for he was living in Sodom. He was near Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. Abram and his men defeat the kings and bring back all the goods, and Lot, and all of his goods. Then last week, we looked at Melchizedek's blessing. Melchizedek, this mysterious king of Salem, who blesses Abram, recognizes and recognizes God's blessing on Abram. Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. A tenth, hmm, okay, prior to the law, before the law. Abram returns all the goods to the king of Sodom because he doesn't want to be beholden to him. And he told God, he does it as he told God he would do. So that sets the stage for where we bring in in genesis 15. It says after these events the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision do not be afraid Abram I am your shield your reward will be very great. So this phrase word of the Lord came it's used throughout the Old Testament and it's usually used to introduce a revelation to a prophet. So we can infer here that Abram is a prophet And that's actually confirmed later in Genesis 20 and in Psalm 105. And indeed, Abram is viewed as a prophet. What's transmitted from God to people in visions is not really, it's kind of a misnomer. It's not really a visual image. It's a word, the word of the Lord is done in a vision. That distinguishes it from a dream, okay? The question would be, why does God speak to Abram now? Why now? He's coming off a big high, right? He defeats the big big upset victor over these kings. You know, things are looking really good. Why does he speak to him now? And why would Abram be afraid? He's on top of the world. Why would he be afraid? Well, it could be as simple as any anytime. An angelic voice let alone where the Lord speaks to a human it's always prefaced with don't be afraid I mean we get that that could just be a human reaction to oh my god um, and so maybe it's as simple as that um, it could be though that if you guys ever heard uh, when the, the pastor that was here for the for the couples conference uh, we had a little time with him before the conference and he gave us some heads-up things for pastors which would be true for any of us but one of the things he said was beware of the ecstatic letdown Like after you've come off the mountaintop experience, the big conference high, you know, all that kind of thing, it could be as simple as, I had a great weekend and now it's Monday. Okay. Beware of the ecstatic letdown. There could be some of that happening where Abram is is susceptible to that because he's thinking, yeah, I defeated these kings, but they're still there and maybe there's retribution coming. And so that, that fear could be coming from a lot of places. So I think it's actually very timely that this is when the Lord steps into this so what does the lord say to abram It has three parts to it there's a command do not be afraid there's an assurance i'm your shield and there's a promise your reward will be very great there's a command an assurance and a promise the idea of shield of course is we see that throughout scripture especially in psalms it's there all the time you know Our Lord God is a son of a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. You know, there's all sorts of references to shield, protector. Abram's reward for his faithful service, though, is much greater than what the king of Sodom offered him, all those riches and things. Because only God can reward Abram with offspring and land that's currently possessed by other people. So Abram recognizes that. Abram's greatest treasure, just like it's our greatest treasure, is not the treasure, right? It's the Lord himself. Amen. That's our greatest treasure. And I really think that's why this is so timely that God comes in as making sure that Abram's focus is directed properly. And they'll carry that on in the next, next week as far as how he lays that out. So, command, assurance, and promise. But then we move into verses 2 and 3. And for the first time, there's actually a dialogue between God and Abram. In the past, it was just a monologue. Chapter 12, God speaks. Chapter 13, God speaks. But now Abraham talks back. Sorry, I'm looking at all the parents out there when I use the phrase, talk back. (laughs) Six kids, I get it. Okay. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now, I don't know how much tone Abram had in his voice. that's why texting never works as well as actual speaking. I, I realize we had those emoji things and they helped a little bit. But The idea then, that he doesn't disrespect God here though. He starts off with Lord God, sovereign Lord, Master, Yahweh. So he's, he's very clear, you know, who you are and who I am. And yet, you've given me no offspring. I know you said back here, you know, it's going to be numerous as the sands of the seashore and a great nation and all this, but you've given me no offspring. We really don't get that these days. Because, of course, back in, back in that culture and for, many, for millennia, you know, children were seen as a blessing. And, in fact, and if you didn't have children, it could be viewed as a, actually as a curse from God that you didn't have children. And from a practical standpoint, if you didn't have kids, then who's gonna take care of the farm? Who's gonna run the business? Who's gonna take care of mom when dad dies? I mean, children were a blessing. They weren't viewed as a burden as they often are now. So it's a huge thing. Again, God's already promised him this, this innumerable heritage, and yet Abram has he's left his home, He's had this experience. He's wandered from place to place. He's in his 80s now, and yet no seed has come from him. Abraham's attitude, his response here, confirms, he says, I am childless. It literally means I'm continuing childless. And one commentator, I think, he he hit this really well. He said, while the expression is often used to denote n- n- barrenness, like it could be as simply as "Yeah, I'm childless," but it literally says, "I am one who is walking stripped, carrying the idea of a person who's like being laid bare, just destitute and desperate." That's like Abraham's posture here. He says, "I am childless. I am just like open and exposed to the world." God sees. God knows. That, that person, it was a real person. Abram was a real person with real feelings, real stresses, real heart issues, just like we do, have today. Just like today, God sees. God knows. So God responds to him in verses 4 and 5 he says, Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous, as numerous as the stars in the heavens. This idea, this theme of you know, mass numbers of offspring appears often in Genesis whether it's stars or the sand of the seashore or the dust of the earth, which is what was used speaking to Abram back in Genesis 13. So what's different now? How has God changed that now to address Abram's concern, his need, his insecurity? He says that that won't come from a slave in your household. That's huge for Abram. It's huge. It's not just going to become, this heritage isn't going to just come from somebody else who's my slave. No, it's going to come from his own body. And it's settles a huge issue for Abram. However, while that one half is settled, the question of whether it will be through Sarai, well, that'll be the next challenge to his faith that you'll look at in the next couple chapters of Genesis see how he does with that. So all that brings us to Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Abram responds to the renewal of the promise by believing in God, by believing in Yahweh. Two key words, of course, here. Believed and righteousness. Believed. Amen. It means to support, to confirm, to be faithful. It's actually the root of that is where we get the word, amen. Let it be so. Let it be established. It reflects an act of trust and dependence on the part of Abram. Abram considers God to be true, reliable, and trustworthy. How do we know that Abram considers him those things? Because it wasn't just And it's speaking with the mouth that Abram said he'd do this or whatever. In fact, what he shares, he shares his, his insecurities, his doubts. But he has acted in faith over years, responding to what God tells him to do. He goes to go here, he goes there. He offers an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. He has displayed it over and over and over So why are these two words connected? Believe and righteousness. Why does God credit righteousness to Abram? Because of his faith. The word righteous has to do with the meaning of conformity to a standard. Conformity to a standard. And that standard is what's right in God's eyes. Now it's right in our eyes. Now it's right in the eyes of culture. Conformity to the standard of what's right in God's eyes. Righteousness is the correct action and attitude before God. And it describes both the members of the covenant and what their responsibility is. Members of the covenant conform to the standard. That's their responsibility to conform to the standard. Abram accepted the word of the Lord as reliable and true and he acted. He accepted it as reliable and true, and he acted in accordance with it. Consequently, the Lord declared Abram righteous. And because he's righteous, he's acceptable. What makes us acceptable in the sight of God is righteousness. Our righteousness? No. God's righteousness. But again, remember where we are in the story here. You know, he and Sarah are both elderly. They have, still have no offspring. They have no ownership in this land of promise that's been given to him. And yet Abram's response to this lack of evidence, this lack of seeing, this lack of experience is incredible. He chooses to believe despite his eyes. And this is the definition of biblical faith. The writer of the epistle of Hebrews tells us in verse, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abraham is displaying the very definition of faith by believing and acting upon God's word, not by what he sees. Later on in Hebrews 11, of course, it describes Abram all the more. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." The New Testament finds Genesis 15 to be foundational for two reasons. One, it declares that Abram was justified by faith. And that's at the heart of Paul's gospel in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. So the first point is justification by faith. And in fact, it confirms that it's not just a New Testament thing. Justification has always been by faith. But secondly, it records that the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is really the found fundamental covenant. Not the one at Sinai, not the Mosaic covenant, which will come in, you know, down the line in Exodus. But the fact that that is the foundation that carries through from them all the way through to us today because it speaks to grace, not the law. Speaks to grace, not the law. Galatians 3. And to honor or show forth this promise, God will bring his people out of Egypt and he will send his son into the world. To honor this promise, to fulfill this promise, bring his people out of Egypt, He'll send his son to the world. In fact, Paul says in Romans 4, he says, referring to Abraham, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, it was not written for Abraham alone. Who was it written for? Us, us, 2,000 years ago, and us today. It was written for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what does that mean for us? On May 21st, Sunday morning, 1030, and maybe all the more, what will it mean for us tomorrow morning we're all having to get up and go to work and do our jobs? And What difference does it make? Well, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you're an unbeliever, then you need to repent, turn away from your sins, place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. This command to repent and believe is what God requires of us in response to the good news of Jesus. A Christian is one who turns away from his sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. Nothing else to save from sin and the coming judgment. Because there will be judgment. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to put our faith in Jesus, to rely on him and trust him to do what he promised he would do. Him and nothing else. I would often have talks with my mom. And I would say, Mom, do you know for sure if you're die today, you'd go to heaven? She'd say, yes, I know for sure. And I'd say, why, Mom? she said, I've led a good life. You know, I've gone to church. You know, I've been a good person. I'd say, but well, mom, you know, Scripture says that that you know it's really just by what's already been done for us on the cross. Jesus, and it's really just through Jesus and faith in Him alone that merits salvation. She says, Jesus, "I know that. I believe that. Jesus is my Savior." I'd say, so mom. You're standing at the gates, and Peter says to you, why should I let you into heaven? She'd say, well, I led a good life. I hope I see my mom in heaven. I don't have an assurance of that. It can't be Jesus and anything else. It's just Jesus. And what are we relying on Jesus for? Well, we're relying on him to secure for us a righteous verdict from God the judge rather than a guilty one. The Bible teaches that the greatest need of every human being is to be found righteous in God's sight. That's everybody's greatest need. Rather than wicked. Now none of us would call each other wicked. There's the few wicked people, the Hitlers and Stalins and all that, but none of us call each other wicked. But what's the standard? Remember? What's the standard? None of us can meet the standard. When the judgment comes, we desperately need the verdict pronounced over us to be righteous rather than condemned. That is what the Bible calls being justified. It's God's declaration that we are righteous in His sight rather than guilty. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're relying on Him to stand as our substitute before God. We need a substitute in both His perfect life and in his penalty pain, death for us on the cross. In other words, we're trusting that God will substitute Jesus' record for our record and therefore declare us righteous. God saves us by pure grace, not because of anything we've done, but solely because of what Jesus has done for us. That is the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. So if, you're, if you've not ever repented of your sins, received Christ your Savior, don't let the day go by. You're not promised another day. Please, reach out and talk to somebody. What about for others here that are believers? What's your application? Well, repent. Place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your sanctification. It's the same gospel. The gospel isn't just for this thing that happened back in the day when I prayed a prayer. It isn't just for down the road when I die that I'm going to be in glory forever. It's the difference maker for every day. When we recognize who we are in Christ, that our identity is secure and when we recognize the standard of holiness. It's like When we screw up, when we blow it, we do it every day. Some of us are struggling with really hard, habitual sins. And we can be just covered with guilt and shame. What should our response be? Well, we could, we could beat ourselves up, literally and figuratively. In the, in the church tradition I came from, you had to do penance. You went to confession, you had to do penance, you had to try to make it up in a sense to God by doing some good things. Repent. Acknowledge it's wrong, confess your sins to God, receive His forgiveness, repent, move on. Because then you can, because again, you're not, you were never made righteous because of anything you did or didn't do. It's all the righteousness of Christ. Accept that, bask in that. That's what gives us, then we have the faith to take that and move on. And we fall and we repent and we accept it and we move on. That's the Christian life. It's, it's just not a high to high to high. We know that. It's the same gospel. How does our faith, how does our faith compare? Well, how do we respond when the world seems to be crumbling all around us? I'm not looking for a show of hands, but one thing I know is that pretty close underneath the surface of everybody here there's issues you're wrestling with that's just the nature of man and unfortunately sometimes we all put our best face on when we come on Sunday morning somebody said that um, church shouldn't be like a uh, interview room when you're going for an interview where you got your best suit on your best look on your best face and everything else is great and all this it should be more like a hospital room right I mean, where we're able to just lay bare who we are and what's going on in our lives. So, how do we respond when everything's crumbling all around us? John Wesley once asked a woman who was really known for her faith, and she answered simply, it's taking God at his word. Sometimes we make it so complicated. God's given us his word. He's given us his promises. He's given us all a measure of faith. God has wonderful promises to us. So let's grasp hold of those and trust in them, and not just in them, but in him who gives them. He who promised is faithful. The same gospel that saves you will sanctify you. So in closing, you remember the picture of Peter and me at the start here? I really don't remember how that turned out. (laughs) I really, I've been racking my brain to think, okay, what can I tell these people? I like, by faith, I would say that um, he jumped into my arms and we had this wonderful moment and then we just played the rest of the day. I don't remember that. I really wish I could. Um, But... The point being, here's the point. Every day, every day, each of us is standing on the edge of that pool. Every day, each of us is standing on the edge of that pool. God is like this. and He's saying, will you trust me? Will you simply take me at my word? And what's our response? Jesus, if you don't catch me, I'm done. I have no other hope. I have no other savior. Save me, Jesus, or I die. Every day. Let's take a step of faith. Let's pray, gracious God. Thank you that you are worthy of our lives. You've purchased us with a price. Thank you that we can trust in you. Thank you that you're faithful even when we're not faithful. You are loving when we are so unloving. Lord, change us. Lord, give us hearts to see you. Hearts of faith. Let us live by faith and not by sight. Little by little, more and more, I want to give you all glory and honor and praise. In your son's name, amen. This time,